0: Session with Dr. Fadid
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Holakwi, I'll be with you for the next 2 hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. 3104410555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, studio number three one zero Let's get to the books of the week. Didn't have a show Monday because of the 4th of July holiday. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week is... The Turnaway Study by Diana Green Foster. The Turnaway Study, 10 Years, 1,000 Women, and the Consequences of Having or Being Denied an Abortion. And so this book is based on a 10-year study um, that I think this book came out last year. I uh, wanted to talk more extensively about abortion and the Roe v. Wade decision. I was very heartbroken by it, but I wanted to make sure I informed myself even more um, before I did more thorough conversation around that topic. So I will be reading this book and and sharing it next week, but looking forward to uh, seeing what this study has found about the consequences of abortion and being denied an abortion. So that's The Turnaway Study by Diana Green Foster. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is Emotional by Leonard Malaudenau. Emotional, how feelings shape our thinking. And this is one of those books, uh, as I've joked at times, I judge a book by its cover or by its title, um, Emotional, how feelings shape our thinking. It's something that I very firmly have believed or my feeling about it shaped my thinking that I think it's very true that our ways of thinking, decision-making, all aspects of our life are affected by our feelings or it's just uh a integral component of being a human being it's constantly there and in this book uh leonard Malaudonau does a great job of looking at some of the new science also some from before but newer science that helps us understand the role that emotion plays in our life and essentially this constant role that it is playing so sometimes we Use terms like i got emotional or i was very emotional but usually what we mean there is that there was this strong feeling of emotion that we were very in touch with or more generally when people say someone got emotional we tend to know they mean they started crying you know i'm getting emotional or she got emotional he got emotional means they started to shed tears but emotion is much more than that that's just one outward expression of a type of emotion, or it could be many emotions that might make us cry. But it's much more a part of our life at any given moment, and for good reason. That's another myth that he does address in the book. At times people think, oh, you know, life is good, or I can live a good life, but emotions get in the way, or emotions negatively impact us. And usually that's because we think of some moments, he shares this moment of um, a man who was broken up with And he thinks to get his lover's attention back He's going to get her sympathy By um, having a friend of his shoot him intentionally To then, you know, he's in the hospital And that's going to bring her back to him and, and, and rekindle their relationship And so he shows that might be an inci- incident Where we would say, well, emotion kind of went wrong Or led him wrong And that's probably true So it's not um, to say emotion is always good either. It's definitely not always bad and we need it to live and survive. What's more important is to understand the function and understand that it's there and also to recognize that if we deny its existence, it doesn't go away, it only will affect us in ways that we're not aware of. And essentially that's happening to us most of the time because we aren't so in touch with them, but it's something that we can work on. So to begin with, how do we even recognize or understand emotion i've read many books on the topic and many articles and a lot of those books will have different definitions for what is emotion what is feeling what is affect and even in those books or articles they'll say that there are so many other definitions as well so it's not some clear-cut way that we can say emotion is only this but we can recognize it as this in experience we have when we have feelings of something internal and the most basic way we can differentiate feelings or what they can make us feel is to either go towards something or away uh, pursue or withdraw or approach or withdraw and we see this level of emotion even in organisms as simple as bacteria where based on detections of certain signals chemicals things or other communication from other bacteria they might um, move in a direction or away from a direction to go towards what's nutritious or nutrients for them or away from something that might hurt them or kill them even this is related to how antibiotics work they attack them and they communicate with one another and can actually affect the ones that survive which is why we are asked to finish the dose completely even if you're feeling better or the the um, series or course you've been given because you want to kill all of the bacteria so we see that emotion is something that exists in all of virtually all living creatures and that basic level of it is to go towards or avoid but that is very simplistic and it makes it very reflexive which can be helpful for a bacteria but when you get to more multicellular uh, organisms, and then of course even more complex ones all the way up to, to human beings, we can see that that is not enough to just be purely reflexive, but it can still be helpful to have emotions. So to give you an example, if you are walking into an area and it's dark and it's a little bit what we might think of as not as safe, even without realizing it, you will have some level of a heightened sense of what's going on around you. If you then hear a sound that really alarms you, all of a sudden you will have this feeling of fear which will kick in a bunch of physiological reactions. You might be more ready for fight or flight. You will be likely more vigilant of hearing sounds and things around you. You might even be hypervigilant, so you might react. We've all experienced this before. If you're a little bit scared and you hear a noise, you might react more Strongly than if you did not already, you were not already in that heightened sense or state. So it'll actually help you. And you can't think your way. You can't think, oh, I'm hearing a sound, so let me listen more carefully to these things or pay attention to certain things. It happens automatically and for good reason. It helps you. We can't always um, consciously figure these things out to rationally come to the right conclusion. It makes a lot of sense that we emotionally react or respond, or it's part of our experience that helps guide what we're going to do. And that's essentially one of the themes that comes up throughout the book is that emotions, rather than getting in the way of what we do and what we think, they actually help guide us. And if we recognize them and recognize what's going on, it actually can help us in making decisions or making better decisions for ourselves. So something I've always said is, it's not that we want to just when we talk about you know listening to our feelings being in touch with our feelings it doesn't mean hear your feelings and just act on them because that's the conclusion people sometimes get to well i realized i was sad so i did this or i realized i was angry so i acted out aggressively or violently and so i'm listening to my feelings so listening to the feelings is just the first step but we take it as a, a piece of data or an understanding, a very important one, but not the final decision maker. And so we can use rational thinking to help us consciously come to a decision or decide to act, not to act, and what to do. But if we're missing this key component of information, we actually will likely be led astray. One, because we won't take it into account, or two, because we won't realize it's affecting the decisions that we make and guiding us uh, in a direction but we think it's from something else. And that's another big theme um, in this book and other books. When we look at things like emotion and its effect on us, is that people often are very unaware of why they're feeling or why they're thinking the way they are, why they make the decisions they make, even why they like a political candidate or a political idea. If I tell you why do you like this candidate, very rarely will people say, well, I actually think he looks competent or she looks competent or they're attractive in some way. But research shows us that very clearly those things have an impact on who people vote for and don't vote for. So we'd like to think I'm just purely rational when I'm making decisions and I don't get affected by things that I would consider unimportant, but that's not at all the case. We all get affected by these things. And it's important, again, if we're aware of them, to then use it to our advantage to take that in as information that you know what i'm liking this candidate but i can recognize that he or she looks better in my opinion than the other person that might even impact why i'm wanting to vote for them but if i think that voting for someone should be about who they are as a politician or how they will serve the office maybe i want to discount that or be aware of that But coming back to the book specifically, one uh, concept that I hadn't heard described in this way um, that he gets into is core affect. So core affect is this constant sense that we have within ourselves, which reflects, as he puts it here, a reflection of our physical viability, a kind of thermometer whose reading reflects your general sense of well-being based on data about your bodily systems, information about external events, and your thoughts about the state of the world. So it's just this sense of how you're feeling, feeling good, feeling bad, feeling okay. And emotion is much more complex than core affect because core affect goes back to this, this more simplistic experience of it's either good or bad, so positive or negative, and it's either intense or low in intensity. So it really only has two um, different characteristics. It can be either positive and negative, or, and it can be intense or less intense. So if you are really in a lot of pain, we would say you have a negative core affect and it's intense. If you were just mildly not feeling okay, uh, you would have a, a negative but less intense or not very intense negative feeling. So this core affect, like a temperature, it's always there. But like temperature, we might not be aware of it until it gets really hot or cold, let's say within ourselves even, or if we get our temperature taken. Often we're not aware of our core affect, but it sort of is like, this is also something we describe with mood. It's like this sense of a climate or something that's going on within you that might affect everything you experience from that point on. Um, A clear study of this or an example of this in a study was one that I've cited before and it's in many books on these types of topics about judges who were making parole decisions and after doing lots of research and analyzing the data they found that when it comes to giving granting parole the officers or the judges often have to make a decision that I think partially we could say would be like a gut instinct so they hear about the the prisoner and what they've done to rehabilitate their experience in prison, how they've rehabilitated or reformed themselves, how ready they might be to return to society, how fair that might feel. And so what they have found is that when it gets closer to lunchtime and we know that the judges are going to be a little more hungry and not feeling as good, they are much less likely to grant parole compared to the first sessions or the first sessions Uh, after a lunch break or when they've eaten. So we would think that judges who are assigned and their responsibility is to be as impartial as possible to look at the data in front of them and to make a right decision. I'm sure they themselves and others would not think that they're going to be affected by something like how hungry they are or how close to lunchtime it is or after lunchtime it is. But we're seeing exactly that. So this is what I mean when I say We'd like to think we don't get affected by these things, but we want to be realistic. And if we are going to be realistic, we have to recognize the effect it has on all of us, from individuals in their their lives to professionals in their professional decision-making. I actually thought about this this morning. I woke up with a slight headache, um, and I'm not sure exactly what it was from. I just returned from a trip a little bit more fatigued, so my core affect is likely slightly negative right now. Not intensely, but slightly negative. So if I'm working with clients, if I'm talking to someone, I'm likely going to have a slightly negative bent to how I see things. And that's something for me to be aware of. I remember one time I was exhausted from a few days of less sleep and not feeling great. And someone asked me, hey, do you want to go on this trip to visit this friend of ours in about a month? And my first reaction was like, no, no, that's just, it's just too much. It felt like too much effort and energy to do it. But then I asked myself, okay, well, I'm actually really tired right now. So taking on something feels like it's a lot or it's going to be too much to do. But I know that a month from now, I won't be feeling this tiredness I am now. Um, So let me not make the decision. Then And I told my friend, give me a couple of days to kind of recoup, to Catch up on sleep and feel a little bit more rested, and then let me give you an answer. So, thankfully, in that moment, I was able to notice I didn't think of it as core affect, but the way that I was feeling in that moment affected how ready I was to expend some more energy or to do something additional to my daily life, and it felt like a bad idea then. But when I slept a bit and and was more rested, and then I decided to go and was happy I did go. So, the more aware we are of how we are feeling in this way, the more we can make better decisions and not get affected by something like that momentary hunger or tiredness or other things that we are experiencing. It also could go the other way. If you just had some really great experiences and are super positive, you're likely to see things more positive than they might even be. So your core affect is something that's always there and it's always coloring the way you feel and then also because of that, how you think about things. The more we are aware of it, the more we can take it into account when we're making decisions and deciding what to do and not to do. So after the break, I'm going to continue talking about the book, uh, really highly recommend it. Um, Leonard Malauda now is a great author. He wrote Subliminal and a bunch of other great science books, but this is his latest one, Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. <music> back continuing the discussion on the book emotional by leonard malaudenau how feelings shape our thinking and so again this um, valuing of emotion and feeling is something that i always uh, am promoting because i think we can undermine the importance of of our feelings our emotions and it's not to make them more important than how we think or rational thought but it's recognizing they're both part of what makes us human we have the emotional side, and we have this rational side, and they're not so separate either. They they interact with one another because how we think or things we thought about can affect how we feel, and how we feel can uh, affect, or as the subtitle of the book says, shape our thinking as well. So it's recognizing the value of our emotion, and even to me, when we look at what we experience as human beings, uh, what really we're we're doing is creating a feeling that feels good, living a good life. It doesn't mean We hedonistically just do what feels good in each moment, but what we're striving for are certain types of feelings to have in ourselves. So feeling is really uh, the core of life or or the core of what we experience as human beings. And so coming back to the book, um, he cites lots of new research and looks at various things, looking at what drives us also, because Uh, As much as we think of hunger or thirst as something separate, some researchers and individuals in the field will will actually label them as types of feelings as well, which of course would be related to things like core affect that I discussed earlier, but that they are also feelings. And so differentiating what is a feeling and not also its own area of research, but recognizing that... Oftentimes our feelings are these things we experience that then guide our action. And there's one chapter on motivation. And it talks about uh, in the sub or the rest of the, the title of the chapter is motivation wanting versus liking. And that's an interesting distinction because we tend to think that we want and like the same things or we like and want the same things. And they are very highly correlated. There's a huge um correlation there. We tend to want the things we like and like the things that we want, but it's not always the case. And also getting into how these things look in the brain. uh, Often we've heard of dopamine as a pleasure type of a um, a neurotransmitter. Dopamine makes you feel good. But dopamine is more related to the wanting than necessarily enjoying something. So it pushes you to experience something uh, or want to experience something. So you go towards that, but it doesn't mean you'll necessarily enjoy that. And sadly, we see this in addiction where often it becomes this type of routine and individuals with uh, who are more prone to addiction might have issues related to how dopamine um, uh, is processed or is uh, functions in their brain. And They can want something, but not even enjoy it. And that's what we see in addiction, which also happens when individuals build a tolerance where there's a strong drive to get the substance or the behavior, whatever it is, but they don't necessarily feel very good when they have the substance. Sometimes it's to give a relief to stop feeling bad, but sometimes it just is part of this routine that we have that the dopamine triggers wanting something, we unfortunately don't even get that much liking and still it might negatively impact us. So that was uh, interesting. There's a whole middle section in the book looking at things like that, also determination. And again, um, sometimes we think of our, our you know rational thinking or we have to have a mind over matter approach when it comes to things like motivation or determination, but we see that emotions play a big part in that as well. Uh, The last section of the book looks at understanding ourselves better and what we can do with our feelings. And so that first uh, chapter there is called Your Emotional Profile. And so, again, one of the themes of the book is that emotions are always there. Our core affect and the other feelings that we have, we're always experiencing them. But what we want to do is improve and increase our self-awareness so that we can make better use of our feelings be more aware of what we're we're feeling and what we tend to feel and let that guide us better than just not understanding it so looking at an emotion profile would mean that we are all human beings and we can all experience the range of human emotions however we don't all experience them in the same ways we all don't feel the same things even in the same circumstances We have different tendencies towards certain feelings and away from other feelings. And so it can be important for us to understand our own emotion profile. And in the book, he includes um, about seven tests that look at things like anger and aggression, anxiety, and things of that sort where you can look at yourself and see how you score on these tests and might give you some insight into your own emotion profile which might be similar to personality, definitely interrelated with that, but understanding yourself and and who you are can be very important, again, to help you in in what you decide to do. Because if you know you're someone who gets angry more or gets anxious more, it could be good to be aware of that. Doesn't mean those feelings will just disappear. But if you know, for example, you're an anxious person, then you know that more than likely in most situations you'll be more anxious than you need to be, meaning that you'll feel anxious or that there's some threat, unknown or known in the future that you should avoid. But maybe it's not something you need to avoid. When you encounter new things, you are likely to be even more anxious. So even though it could be something that's good for you or something that at first will be difficult, but you'll overcome, your tendency will be to go away from that. And so we can try to encounter that, okay, or, or counter that. I'm i going to try this new thing where I've been approached with a new job offer. It does seem like it's good, but my feelings say, go away from it. Let me try to understand that. Is that a, a healthy gut feeling that's telling me to go away from it? Or is it my anxiety, which will almost always go away from anything new? And that's what's pushing me away. So this can really help us when we understand ourselves and also in our relationships, understand our partners to understand how we tend to act and react. For example, people um, will often put away certain feelings because we think they're bad or wrong, and so we might be less likely to want to express them or be comfortable expressing certain feelings. And he also gets into some things related to uh, nature and nurture, which is quite fascinating, too, in understanding our emotions and our emotional development. Um, And and going back to the, the gut or that core affect, they've done some studies where they've taken... Um, the, I think it was the bacteria or the, the something from the gut of anxious mice and put them in non-anxious mice and vice versa and found that it affected their tendency to be anxious or calm um, based on that. Uh, They've also done research where they have uh, genetically more anxious mice raised by calm mothers and vice versa. And they saw that the nurture that the way that they were raised or the mother they were raised by had an impact in how calm or anxious those mice became. So if you had a genetically more anxious mice but raised by a calm mother, they became more calm and if you had a genetically more calm mouse and was raised by a anxious mother, they became more anxious. So we see as it's always the case, it's not nature or, nurture it's both but we can understand the dynamics that are in play and also epigenetic effects that happen as well based on things like the nurture and the environment that we are in and so oftentimes science will help us understand something that we intuitively thought was true or we observed but we always have to be careful because we can intuitively see things that aren't true or sometimes we can have a understandable intuitive response either way if it was found to be one way or the other, so after the fact it seems obvious, well of course it was gonna be this, um, but we can fool ourselves into thinking it seems so obvious when really uh, we're just confirming, or now that we know, confirming what we see to be true. So that was interesting seeing the effect, uh, these are of course on other animals, so can we say it'll definitely be true in humans? No, but it seems pretty likely to be the case and we can see that, and there are studies looking at how for example, abuse affects the human brain, and we can see that very clearly. I remember in a book on suicide I read a few years ago, I was very uh, I was blown away um, by research that found that even the type of abuse led to different types of changes in the brain. For example, if it was verbal abuse, there were changes in the auditory centers, and if it was physical abuse, the more more somatosensory or physical types of uh, but parts that relate to the physical experience would be affected, which is quite remarkable. So, clearly, there's always going to be a nature and nurture, but we can understand those di- dynamics much more clearly uh, as we research them and, and see what's going on. Uh, so, he also at the end of the book gets into well, what can we do to help ourselves with our feelings or to deal with them? One thing, uh, going back to this big theme of awareness, is meditation. So. When we meditate, it helps us get in touch with our feelings, especially like your core affect, what you're experiencing at any given time, the more mindful you are overall, and just feelings that you are experiencing. And as I've tried to make very clear, we have to be aware that when you meditate, although we have these associations with people feeling very Zen and calm and feeling good, and overall it can have that effect, Uh, over time and in subtle ways, it it doesn't mean you're only going to get in touch with good feelings. You actually will get even more in touch with the feelings you've been trying to avoid or deny that are there. So anger, envy, sadness, loneliness, feelings that you are trying to avoid, you will become aware of and we have to be ready for that. And again, it's not that those feelings are going to feel good, but that they are data, they're information that you can then use to go forward forward and live your life and make decisions for yourself, because they're coming from somewhere, and knowing that information helps you rather than hurts you. So meditation can be very important, just being more aware. Uh, Therapy can be very important in understanding yourself better. And related to therapy, he shares how expressing our feelings can be important, and there's research showing that it can help us deal with our feelings. Um, He shares the story of an executive who, when she would get upset, she would write an email to the person that upset her but she wouldn't send it she said okay well right now i'm in the heat of the feelings she would write the email and put it in a you know her draft folder and say i would look at it in a few days but then she would realize she usually didn't because just writing her feelings out helped her release it a bit and get more calm and then she didn't feel the need to express that anger to the person or share that in that way so whether it's in that kind of a mode writing that's why journaling and things can be very helpful. Um, therapy can be very helpful, expressing our feelings. It needs to be with a trusted person that we feel calm with and can feel that we can express ourselves. It doesn't have to be therapy. It could be a friend, family member, loved one that we can do that with. But there is evidence that verbalizing or expressing our feelings in some way feels good. Um, sometimes it's also called affective labeling. And related to that, there is an importance in the granularity of there, meaning that the more specific we can be about the feeling, the better. So emotions, feelings, we sometimes think of them as even I'll talk about it today, mentioning it in these ways. There's anger, there's sadness, there's happiness or joy, uh, surprise. There's these few different feelings and it can make it seem like there are this these solid different feelings and that's how we experience them. But the reality is it's much more of a there's an infinite there's infinite feelings or emotions we can experience and so even if we look at colors so let's say if we think of those major types of feelings as different colors it's not just that those colors exist all the colors of the spectrum exist meaning that you have a little bit of the blue and the red and the yellow. You can have infinite colors. It's not just that there's a few different emotional experiences. So there's a difference between being slightly frustrated by something and being deeply enraged about it, about something else. And so if we just say, oh, you're mad, that might be in the general category or vicinity, but it won't really help us connect to it in the same ways if you really can recognize, am I frustrated or enraged or do I feel wronged or is it a repeated feeling? Those different experiences or those different ways of labeling can feel really good. And you, you see this a lot in therapy where when the therapist might help, and I've experienced this with clients, of course, I get it wrong a lot of times too. But at times if I'm able to label their feeling quite accurately and it resonates with them, it feels good just to have it labeled in the right way. There's a sense of calm that we get when we experience that. And so there's research that supports this feeling that we get when our emotion is appropriately labeled. Just that experience helps. And there's research that shows that when we try to suppress our feelings, push them down, it doesn't work. Which is something that many people try to do with their feelings. Is think that if I just push them down, push them away, that's the best way. Or even unconsciously they might be doing this. But we see that it doesn't lead to Uh, good experiences for individuals when they do that. So pushing your feelings down doesn't work. Pretending like they're not there doesn't work or help. They're always there. Just like your temperature, we always have this core affect and these feelings that we experience. It's whether or not we want to understand them, know them, and then embrace them and use them to help us live our lives or pretend like they're not there and have them affect us without our awareness. The answer to me is clear. We want to be aware. We want to know what's there, understand it, understand ourselves, and help it guide our lives rather than pretend like they are not there. And this book does a great job of showing the importance and significance of our emotions and our feelings and how they impact us. So again, that's Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking by Leonard Malaudenau. Highly recommend it. Hope you'll check it out. All right, let's go to a, a commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello.
2: Hello, Doctor Holaky. Thank, thank you for taking my call sure. and thank you for your time.
1: My pleasure. Nice to nice to I hear your voice. Suggest, go ahead.
2: Uh, Yes, I would like to know the expert's opinion, such as yourself, about the second generation of the Iranian teenagers in the U.S. about um, issues of dating limitation of boy and girl's relationship and what will be led to and um, sexual activities at this age of um, 15 to 17 and so on and so forth. Um, the question mainly, is, where is the red line that parents can communicate that to their children? Mm-hmm. And um, considering how much the society and social media emphasize on the physical attraction and casual and every relationships among teens. I do appreciate uh, your input, your comment on that.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, you know, these are some pretty big topics that you're bringing up. And- I don't think we're going to get some clear answer that this is exactly what we have to do or what we need to do. The the second part you mentioned social media. I think uh, it's unfortunate. I'm very big on making sure we don't say something is all bad or all good. So I wouldn't say social media is all bad. Um, there are some good things it can do, but one of the things it definitely does is makes us more focused on the superficial about everything. So um, you know how people look becomes the most important even people look at relationships and it's more about how it looks or how cute the thing they're doing together or how it looks in the video or picture and so many things get evaluated on those things or about what people have and own and things like that so I think you're right that it's going to ha- has that impact of and already has of even more emphasizing physical looks and beauty what tends to happen is it's the things that are already part of human beings and human life they get exaggerated, so people have always cared about looks, but things like social media can amplify and exaggerate that. People have always gotten angry about things, but uh, social media can exaggerate those things or amplify those voices and then amplify the effects in society. So I think that's true. Now that being said, what we also want to look at is what are you going to do? I don't Are you Are you calling as a parent yourself with, with teenagers? Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. So we can also, you know, as much as you're willing to get into it, look at your own experience and what you're going through with your, your teens. It's challenging because when they're kids, we worry, of course, about their safety and well-being and how we're raising them. But then when they get into teenage years and into young adulthood, the consequences of the actions they can take become more significant as they become a closer to adults and become adults. And that could be more uh, anxiety-provoking for parents of how do I guide them towards and away from things that lead to better outcomes for them. One of the things we have to recognize is we can't, of course, control what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. And so we have to accept that, that we can have some effect, some influence, of course, but at the end of the day, they're going to make their decisions. And so even if we think, you know, you said a red line, um, this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing, even if we tell them that, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to avoid those, crossing those red lines, whatever they might be. So what I tend to tell parents is whatever the issue is, recognize that your role is first and foremost to have a relationship with your child, not to get them to do something or to not do something because you can't do that, and that's not going to be helping them become their own person anyway. So we have to recognize that we are limited to a degree if we're hoping to control them we can't control them we have to be mindful of that now tell me more specifically what is it that you are concerned about when it comes to dating sexual activity in your children and if you don't mind how old are your kids
2: um age uh, 13 and 16 okay um well the main um, things that brought this question to me is Seems that, um, or at least that seems that my uh, daughter brought to my attention that most of the kids in her high school having relationship talk about it, take a pride into start early in this uh, relationship with another classmate,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, they're about the same age, and um, it can go. I don't know exactly to starting from holding hands and go further, um, which I don't know exactly to what extent, but it seems like this is the route that most of the girls at this age are very proud of. And they usually use this kind of comment to attract their friends to say how popular they are, how good-looking they are, how much they are wanted. And uh, that's a source of pride to them. Mm -hmm. And when she brought that, my attention, I have many other parents trying to tell her this is not the way to go and this is not a source of pride. Is your body is a respectful thing that you have to start it, not because you're under the peer pressure on that or because you want to just have another story to tell. Uh, this is not the way to go. Mm-hmm. However, uh, when the, the other side, the number is so many, and then you're trying to have the kind of friends or kind of people around your, uh, you know, children that they have the same type of way of living, Um, the number is very limited, especially in big cities I see. And um, that becomes a challenge. And uh, sometimes I feel like if I try to pull her too much, then it means isolation that brings a lot of uh, You know, anxiety for her, depression, or she might feel like, what am I going to do next year, having no friends around. At the same time, if I'm trying to be a little bit uh, outspoken even to her friends, the people who date very casually, who think this is very cute, it's very interesting to attract a boy or to lead them on, which I always told her this is a wrong way of doing it. We follow those 10 principles that Dr. Holakwe has always talked about it. Um, and about the human dignity this is not the right thing to lead somebody even you know that um, basically is a lead is nothing more than that but this is a cute thing that these days it seems like is going on so um, trying to have a rule on that trying to draw a red line which um, basically trying to, to say that what is the limit if you are going as a group out it's completely okay in public, but as one-to-one in a uh, more isolated area, is not okay. And even you are okay, the other person might not feel the same way, or the other person do not think the same way. And even he feels that way, how about his friends going to be or tell him? So there are so many unknowns, so many factors cl- play in there that I um, as a parent feel like there should be at least some kind of uh, guidelines from the experts to say this is basically at this age is emotionally, physically not uh, healthy for young teenager to start. And that should be said very, um, very openly. And I even discussed that with the principal of their school that then you see you know, this and that, what do you do? And she says, well, if I see the parent does not take any steps into it, what would you like me to do? Mm-hmm. If I see a young girl come with certain way of dressing in the school, and the parent just drop her from their own car, what do you want me to do? And I understand that there are so many other issues in a school that this become a very minimal issue mm-hmm. in high schools. So that's why I wanted to know what the uh, experts would um, recommend
1: okay. and guide the parents. So one, you know, there's a, a few things to, to mention. One is there was something you shared about telling your daughter's friends about what they should or or shouldn't do or how they should approach things. I would av- advise against that to try to convince them of something. The effect you can have on your own daughter is is itself limited, but to then extend that to other kids other friends of hers i would advise against that to give them advice if they ask you something you can give an opinion but not to try to convince them of something um clearly you care about this issue which i can understand caring about it but we have to be aware that sometimes when we have such a clear sense that something should be a certain way um, we can impact our kids or try to affect them too much so or the people even around them which you also think will affect your daughter, I'm sure, if they're different. But to try to change their minds about things, you have to be very careful not to go down that path very far or even start with her friends. With her, having conversations I think is good, but not trying to think you're going to make her think a certain way or see it the same way you do. And first, I would say even looking at the unhealthy ways you maybe think about sex and relationships. And I say that not just to you, but to anyone, because there's things that we have assumed and made conclusions about because of our own experiences, because of the families and the cultures and the society at that time period we were raised in. That's going to affect how we look at things like dating and sex and those types of things. So uh, that's also something to be aware of. If you see sex a certain way, you're going to project that onto your child, and that's not something we want to do. And, you know, you mentioned these red lines that we want to draw. You mentioned that before. The thing is, you can draw all the lines that you want. And you can, of course, in saying, for example, you don't want her to bring someone home or to spend the night or those types of things. You can draw those red lines for those rules. But setting red lines for her, you can draw them, but it doesn't mean she's going to not cross them or to, let's say, follow them. And you might think coming from experts has some value. It could to you, but the children, for example, if experts say smoking causes cancer, which it does, that doesn't necessarily deter them either. So if you think that, let's say I give you, I tell you that, let's say, no dating one-on-one until 18 or something, which I don't think is actually true, but let's say if I told you that, how are you going to implement that or how is that going to affect your daughter? The The specifics of... What you think is right isn't necessarily going to be what she's going to do and not going to do. I think what's most important is that you have conversations with her, but very important there is that it's conversations, not lectures, where you're going to tell her to, to let's say, not do something or do something or she can't do something or do something. Valuing herself in general, that's important. Although when you say valuing her body, I would ask you, you know to think about would you say that differently to a, a son versus a daughter? Because that's something that we often do, that we see sex differently, male and female, and how they should treat themselves or what they should or shouldn't do. Now, there is something of the consequences and it can feel even more relevant with what's happened in the United States with Roe versus Wade and that parents, uh, you know, we don't want that anyway, but then with those types of consequences, there's things that are real there. So I'm not saying not to care about them, but being aware of trying to stop your daughter thinking I'm going to set these red lines and she's going to follow them isn't really going to be the way you can help her, more you can help her by being someone she can talk to about things and have conversations with to understand the decisions she's going to make because she's going to have to make hundreds and overall thousands of decisions related to these types of issues and almost all of them will be when you're not there and you won't have any control over them. Now this topic is very broad and and, and I went in a lot of broad and general areas, but after the break, we're at a commercial break, we can talk a bit more detail, some things that you're looking at with your daughter, and then we can see if there are some things, you know, you're talking about these general ideas or rules I might be able to share with you based on what you're talking about. So I'm going to put you on hold and let's talk after the break, okay? Thank you. Sure. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to them now. All right. So... um, As I mentioned, we can get into more specifics, too, about your daughter, and I thought about it during the break. I can understand your feeling. It seems like you're worried about the things she might do or get into, and you're hoping that there's something that's going to hit the brakes or help stop her from going down certain paths or doing things that you don't want her to do. And so even hearing it from me, maybe you think that'll... I doubt she would listen to me or make, make a difference in her opinion, but maybe you'll feel like you can go and tell her. Well, also, experts told me this, you know, you should not do this or, or you know, this is where you should draw the line. Um, so I get you're concerned about her. But tell me about the conversations you've had with her or where things are, are at at this time.
2: Thank you. Yes, actually, I wanted to make a few points about the comments that uh, uh, you made uh, before the break. Regarding the friends, I never tried to advise the friends. Basically, I felt like she did uh, perhaps shy away from telling them exactly what the parents' expectation is. So, in a sense, um, I felt like um, she does what they are offering her, like, for example, with more revealing clothes or shorter skirts or whatever, and I felt like perhaps she's not able to communicate that with her friends because sometimes they would borrow, um, she borrowed from them or they would lend her, oh, that looks better on you. So I just uh, basically told them that what we think, just told them what we think for our daughter, not necessarily for them. However, I know that if we had all kind of close background might have been easier, but Since we don't, but I just told them what I felt. That was the first thing. The rule that we're having uh, for my daughter is the same rule for my son, and we are very clear about that. That for both of them, we don't think that they should have any type of sexual activity until they're more mature, which I'm giving a limit of 18, which I know by law I don't have any more than that. Mm -hmm. However, I hope that they carry on a little bit longer and the main reason that um, i try to have that communication because um, i believe that the emotional impact of having relationship at a very younger age it would definitely impact them um, the consequences of not only physical consequences but also emotional impact uh, on that however um saying all those still as you said it comes back to the child who wants or to your, um, basically, daughter or son to decide at the end Mm -hmm. uh, what to do. And that's uh, the difficulty because, um, in a sense, if they are, I feel like um, if um, she obeys what we want her, which is no sexual activities, be transparent, uh, be open about it, if there is anything come to us, do not get into teenage boys' car is just dangerous because of, you know, teenage boys or teenage boys are like speeding and this and that. So these are like a very type of points that we just bring it up and trying to ask her that um, please follow that. But definitely we mentioned that it's not having any sexual activity until the age that we are legally responsible, at least we can say that because I can't tell her until she gets married. But I know that is beyond my control and beyond this society expectation for a parent to do. However, um, and well, that,
1: let me, let me just—I'll yeah. start with the, you know—use you the word obey, um, and that well,
2: is the rule of the house. That's
1: but what, but what is that? Is obey. Okay, but what does that house. mean? The rule of the house, uh, you know. This is what I mean is that you can have you could say that's a rule has she said she agrees with you these things?
2: She agrees now after a uh, kind of um, back back to back kind of conversation, uh, first of all, it was like an issue with the friends. so for two, three weeks she's not in touch with their friends. she's very sad about it. She blames us. Uh, but why
1: is that. she not why did she have to not be in touch with the friends?
2: She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to because I'm thinking uh, the pressure that the kids are, for example, hanging out and do whatever they do mm-hmm. uh, is not something that she sees that the parents approve of. Um, I'm not saying that they're doing some, such a wild thing, but basically whatever they are doing and uh, like hanging out, dating, going places one to one, we don't approve of that. So she doesn't even want to get into middle of that. So then she has to make a choice between parents and them. So she's trying to be low key. So basically it's not there. So, so she's not in touch with them, which is makes her very sad at the same time. Yeah, And makes us to know what is our role here. I even, I even went back to her and says, can I invite them here? Uh, can you they can come here they're all girls the ones that i know that she was hanging out but those girls have their own you know dating things and their parents are pretty okay and that's what really makes her kind of angry with us because she's saying they wear whatever they want they go places wherever they want to go and when i do all of a sudden things are getting escalated Mm -hmm. and uh, that the hottest spot that we are in, and mm-hmm. um, we, I'm, I'm uh, my husband and I both are concerned. That our concern is that if she, if things are not very clear to her, if things are just by assumption, is there? If it's not clear, she makes choices that later on is a much bigger step she does take.
1: But when, when you, you say things reason. are not clear, what do you mean?
2: Clear means, for example no sexual activities under age of 18 oh. no being with a guy in a car no matter what you can okay. learn your own you know get your own driver license get your uh, you know learner permits whatever it is we trust you more than you get on a boy's car uh, because kids are like that they go together you know one of them is eight months older so he has a Car mm-hmm. and they want to go somewhere and then they are done they say oh how about you stop somewhere else and they end up to go places that they never told you at the beginning where they are going to go um so okay. we ask them not to do that what i'm and that's kind of yeah. embarrassment for her a parent come and take her to there and bring her back yes,
1: yeah i mean it? i get the, you know look there's clearly a, a strong element of control here you want to control everything that happens to her but you are gonna to have to accept more and more that you can't and you're gonna have okay. to let go of that because something I'm here you know I heard from you was you feel like she can't stand up to her friends or you know challenge them. but I don't get the sense that you make it easy for her to challenge you mm-hmm. And so if you want to teach her to stand up for herself, you have to show her that she's allowed to stand up to you. doesn't mean that you just let her, run the show, but that if she disagrees, she can tell you if she, you know, sees things a different way, you really want to hear her opinion, but I'm not getting that sense from you. And so I hear, yeah, I hear this a lot from parents will say, I want my kid to stand up to the teacher to this person. But if we don't show them that they can stand up to us, who are the first authority figures, why would we think they could then do it with other people? So you have to be very aware of that that what you know when you use words like obey and when i'm hearing these themes of control what you're teaching her is let other people make the decisions for you and so right now that's you but if you keep presenting it in this way or interacting with her in this way it's then going to be other people in her life and she might even be more likely to make decisions she might not even feel good about because she might not feel as comfortable standing up for herself or thinking for herself. That's why I'm emphasizing, not because I think your rules are necessarily even bad. Now, we don't have to go into that. It's that if you just dictate or try to dictate her life for her, thinking, well, this is not a good thing, so I'm going to stop her from doing it. You're also taking away her ability to think or the confidence she has to think and act for herself, which then when she's making all these decisions without you there, That's where it's really going to cost her. So that's my concern is that she's going to be losing her own sense of thinking for herself more and more rather than you think you're protecting her from these things that are happening.
2: So in your opinion, starting from point zero, like assuming that we put everything aside from what we talked with her or talked with her, Um, And uh, believe me, she has signed up to me. Okay, good. (laughs) I have seen that. So I have not seen that she obeys 100%. Many times we ask her, for example, not this shirt. uh, Please do not wear that around the house. You have a younger brother. It's just a little bit considered the the dress code and things like that. And many times she has signed up to me. And Mm -hmm. uh, I accept that. We accepted that. So that's not... And She has a strong personality, which she wants to. I can definitely say that. Um, but, okay, I agree that uh, a lot of things that for parents want and wish um, is, is not a reality of life, and I have to come to agree to that. However, my, my question is, starting from point zero, which is now, um, going forward, how I should approach that by uh, approach her in a sense that she gets her life back because she's basically becoming like more passive aggressive so she's kind of right now that she's not seeing her friends she's acting like she's bored she's not doing anything around the house but she's around us but she's not a pleasure doesn't have a pleasant personality to be around mm-hmm. um, but that's what it is I understand exactly what you just said that you make her you know, something that
1: she's not. Yeah, and I'm trying to get, you know, and it seems like you're not aware, You maybe you've asked her, but, you know, she hasn't told you why she's not seeing her friends. I know you you had your assumptions about it, but did she share with you why she's not seeing her friends?
2: Yes, she's saying that, uh, you know, what they want to do, I know is what you guys do not want me to do. And if I go there, there's going to be another discussion at home. If I go there, I always concern if, uh, if, uh, if this is right or if this is not right. That's one of the reasons she gave me. As I told you that those friends have is dating and they're going out with boys and they're having, hanging out here, there. Many of them get into the car with the boys and all these things going on with them. And if she does, she, since this is not something, you know, we discuss with her, we don't want her to do, if she goes there, there's going to be another issue with her friends, and then we get upset. So she has to basically pick and choose. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why she doesn't talk to them. And, and I ask her again, and she said, I'm not a good friend to them. And I think, uh, you know, whenever I need something, I go to them when I don't need um I don't get in touch with her. So she missed few birthdays because uh, of few reasons. One, because she wasn't managing her time well. She, we were traveling, she didn't tell us that this is not the time that we travel. So she missed few birthdays. Her friends a little bit upset with her uh, because she promised she will be there. She didn't go. Um, but that was before the, all these fights, So that mm-hmm. had nothing to do with our uh, conversation. But that's the reason. These are the reasons that
1: she gave us. Okay. Well, yeah, it seems like it's at least partially incomplete. I'm trying to understand what's going on. And as you said, some of it was happening before these conversations. So I I hope you'll, it seems like she's blaming you, though, for, for not being as close to them at some level.
2: Yes, it is. So, yeah. The reason is, as I said, because many of the things that these kids were doing, I wasn't and her, and, you know, we were not as a family approving. And if she hangs out with them again, she's gonna have the same type of activities which we don't approve of. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's so getting into a car. What, what other what other things are you saying? Like if they have a party and boys are there also?
2: Yes, and we don't have any problem with them going as a group. And being with even going with the boy to a dinner, we don't have any problem, with any issue. Uh, but having one to one in a you know in a isolated area, we are not for it. We absolutely say no. And we even ask for the friends come over our house, and we even said that if the parents wants to come, we love to meet them. Mm-hmm. Um, but things
1: right now is on hold. So okay. Well, I mean, you know, the I think the last thing the the kids want is to have a party with the parents. You know, I know you're saying they come over and, and meet you, but that's the opposite of what they're trying to do. And, and this and this is what I mean by the control. I understand parents say this all the time. Come over to our house because, you know, it's under our roof and under your eye or, you know, you feel like you have that control. But, you know, they what if another parent says, I want them to come to my house. You know. We have no
2: problem. We always ask for okay. an adult. We say any party that there is an adult there, we have no problem. Mm-hmm. Is someone there? If there is an adult above age of twenty-five, is there? Mm-hmm. Or if, I mean, an adult. I mean, like a parent, someone responsible, not older sibling, someone responsible. If it's there, that's fine. She can go with them. She even had a plan to go to a beach for girls with the one mom, and it was okay with us. We okay. have no problem with that.
1: The but thing you know, when,
2: when it's just by themselves at like teenage years, I mean, should we should be know, you know, teenage years is a wild time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we say, no.
1: But you know, this is my, my concern is here, where it's that you're trying to prevent her, for example, being alone one on one with a boy, but you can't do that. You're just not going to be able to. She's going to go to school. You know, what, what you're more likely to create is she's going to start hiding things from you. That's what I mean that you have these red lines, these rules, but if she doesn't agree with them or she doesn't want them, it's only going to create some kind of challenges or conflicts where she'll either not do it and be mad at you or she'll break the rule and lie to you. It's not going to stop these things from happening. So I think you want it to not happen, which I totally understand, but you're not going to stop them from happening. And and that's what I want you to be aware of when you're coming up with these whether they're rules or things, it's it's not going to work long-term to have her, even like you said, not have sex before marriage. I I don't know if that's necessarily the right thing for her to do, but you're saying that's what you want for her, but recognizing that she's going to have more and more and needs to have more and more of a say in what she's doing, you're just going to interfere with your relationship with her rather than stop her from doing something. It seems like you're really in this point where you're afraid to lose her to this kind of way of being that you're seeing her friends or other people's social media, the way you know you brought it up, you're afraid to lose her to that, that she's going to get sucked into this world, and then you lose her. And I can understand the concern of her getting involved in things that have consequences and what, how it's going to affect her, but being aware that you can't control what she's going to do. If she wants to be al- alone with a boy, she can, and she's going to be able to do that. You just won't be able to completely stop it if, if she wants that. But,
2: Dr. Hulakwe, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry, perhaps I, I couldn't communicate well. But I don't mean to be alone with the boy in any uh, society. I have no issue. She can't even go to dinner with the boy one-to-one. What I wanted to say is it's just a regular relationship.
1: But how are but you going to stop that? How are you going to stop, what is that even, a regular relationship? How can yeah, you stop her from
2: that basically one leads to another.
0: Of course,
1: but I'm saying how do you think you're going to stop those things? How do you think you're going to stop her from liking a boy, from being attracted to a boy, to, you know, kissing? Like, how are you going to stop those things? I'm not saying they're all, I'm going to tell her to go do those things, or I think, you know, you should want her to do them, but to think you're going to stop them, I don't think is realistic. You're
2: right. You're absolutely correct. There is no way one can control that. and no way. Yes.
1: And the more you try to control her the only thing you're going to do is to ruin your relationship with her. You won't even stop these things from mean, happening.
2: What do you suggest to do from here?
1: Well, so I like What's I said here? having conversations with her about these things, these things. Why are we, you know, even this is I I have concerns because of this. If you have, you know, sexual relationship or if you're these this is what my concern is. What do you think? And have a conversation, let her talk to you about what she feels and thinks about these same issues. You know, just like drugs and alcohol, yes. Uh, Do we want our kids to do them? No. But do we know they might get exposed? Yes. So we can say you can't. No one in our house does these things, but if they want to go do them, then they will. What are you going to do? But if you have conversations with them, you can hopefully affect the decisions they'll make down the line and be there for them to come talk to you about them. So you can say you're not allowed to date till you're 25. You know, even like, let's say legally you're saying, but let's just say you say that, but what are you going to do to, to stop that? She'll probably start doing it and just hide it from you that's what I'm saying is I'm not saying the things that you're worrying about have nothing to worry about or they're totally okay you know sexual activity at this age of course there are concerns there but to think you're going to control it that's the part where you have to let go of that that I can't control her as hard as it is to accept that I can't control what my daughter does I can't protect her from these potential risks that I see there I have to accept that I can't do that what I can do is be her mother, to have a relationship with her, to communicate about these things as she goes through them herself and has questions or concerns or she's worried about something. I want her to be able to come to you if she does date a guy and something comes up. Right now, if something happens and she's with a guy, she won't tell you and she might be in some situation or some position that she doesn't like, but she won't come to you because she knows mom won't accept it or mom's going to you know, get so angry or you know whatever else. So you're, in that way, abandoning her in that world even more. You think you're protecting her from it, but what's going to happen is she's going to go into that world without your support, without your connection, without your um, you know, help in all of these situations. That's what I'm worried about. Not that that world is all safe and nothing bad can happen, but that you're actually abandoning her more than you think you are. You think you're protecting her, but you might throw her there without you.
2: Yes. And then, uh, where is the, um, what I want to understand is communication, this kind of conversation, to what extent one can talk about these things without really getting to the point that is enough is enough. Like, like basically, she knows all the advice, she knows the expectations.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: basically, we converse time to time, but it seems like it's just too clear for her to even have any question, or basically, yeah. she shuts up
1: yeah well that's what I mean is you're not gonna you know you likely won't convince her she's not gonna first of all she probably shouldn't see it the way you do I mean you know every generation is gonna see things slightly differently so I'm not saying all the things you're saying go wrong but we should understand that we shouldn't expect her to see it exactly like you do and you were like I said if you look at how you probably were affected by what you were told some of them were negative things not helpful things and not unhealthy things so we don't want her to see it exactly like you do and to put that as the goal that she needs to see it the way i do you're just going to be dragging her and pulling her back towards you which is not going to work you're just going to either again she'll hide it from you or she'll just resent you and and go the other way completely so that's why my recommendation is to turn these rather than lines and rules and she has to obey more into conversations because if you turn it into a control situation You're not going to stop her from doing things, you're just going to stop your relationship with her in different ways. So it's not again that the things you're worried about have nothing to be concerned about, there are real risks and real things there, but to recognize that I can't control them, the best I can do is have conversations, be there, and then she will go make, you know, it seems like you're saying we have these talks, but she doesn't seem to get that she needs to think like me. That's not going to happen. You have these talks and she still gets to her conclusion and makes a decision for herself.
2: Correct. Correct. I appreciate it.: Thank I you appreciate
1: so you. It's good luck. It's tough. These are the toughest years. but I hope you'll focus on your relationship with her more than anything because that's going to be there now and, and forward and going, you know into the future and let her become the person she will become. But bet, wish you all the best. Thanks for your call. Thank you again. Take sure. All luck. right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi, thanks for calling.
3: Hi, Dr. Farris. Um, My problem is my struggle with complex uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that I was finally diagnosed with. I'm 52, I've been struggling with depression and anxiety for 30 years. I'm hmm. a uh, so mother of two, um, my kids are adults. Uh, But the last therapist that I had after I was diagnosed, um, she got laid off. And they were supposed to be working on me with neuro-linguistic programming therapy. Mm -hmm. And um, I really had no idea what they were doing. But I just had so many, I mean, still have relationship problems. I mean, uh, anxiety, avoidance. Uh, I know the triggers, the trust and um, but um, I was wondering if I can explain linguistic programming and do I need a, um, a, a, a counselor or is it something I can go study myself?
1: Mm. You know, I, I can't say I'm an expert on that uh, neurolinguistic programming. I have seen some things saying can have benefits. I am a little bit skeptical myself. At times it seems a little bit simplistic and has some... Um, sense of a quick fix type of a, a, a treatment where you say certain yeah. things and that could reprogram the brain definitely gets you know it's pla- there's a plasticity there and we can get we do reprogram retrain things can change in the brain uh, but my experience of what I've seen with neuro linguistic programming seems simplistic so I'm definitely not an expert on it that I can tell you definitively it does not help what I would recommend for you is to see a therapist, definitely one who's trauma-informed or who has experience working with trauma. And yeah. I wouldn't think of, if you're talking about complex PTSD, it's not something that yeah. I would expect you to just solve it on your own or you know try to figure it out by yourself. You're more than likely going to need the, the aid of a therapist and, again, one who is Informed, we call trauma informed types of therapy or treatments, and who has experience working with um, PTSD, and especially p- uh, complex PTSD, if you could find that.
3: So, um, you know, um, uh, can you explain a little bit more about complex PTSD? I know it's from childhood, still, so I have problems with my mother, uh, but, you know, the effect of it is still there, the triggers trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know then I avoid uh, passive aggressive I have problems with boundary or acceptance that I I was on IOP program uh, intensive outpatient program Um, so we learned a lot but um, so I didn't have a therapist since then
1: okay Um, I'm
3: looking for one still still when I go therapy um, honestly I've been going to therapy for around 15-20 years and it's mostly talk therapy and we talk about what happened last week and I mean things happen a lot um, right now my emptiness so it's a little less friction with my kids and mm-hmm. we we'll live somewhere well we don't have relatives around uh, not many friends I have problems with friendship I only have two trusted friends and I don't want to socialize. I know my uh, triggers. I try to take responsibility, taking care of myself, not getting into uh, all those um, uh, stresses. Mm -hmm. But uh, the therapist that I used to go, I mean, it is a daily talk. It's a talk therapy. I don't get to learn the skills. I was reading a Nicholas Sparks book like yesterday, finished it, it's called The Return, and the guy was ptsd from a a surgeon from iraq war so during the story he was talking about oh uh, now i have to use my cbt or um, DBT. is there any fictional book so i can really go through people's life that struggle and um, see how they use the skills because i know that the the, the cbt Mm -hmm. i know what are the mistakes of mine but since I have all these reflections or fight or flight, maybe I have to do journaling that you do. I do try to do it, but it's not consistent. <laughs> After a while, there are too much going on in my mind. I cannot just sit down and write it down. Uh, well, you it can, know,
1: you know. know what Yeah, curious. yeah. No, no, I mean, it can help. J- journaling might, might help you. But I would say, you know, again, you're asking for like a book that talks about it. And okay. the, the therapy you went to... I know it's a very easy thing to say go to therapy and it's not like it's that simple and it's definitely going to help. I do think it's very important that you go to the right type of therapy or um, therapists that will focus on your issue because most types of talk therapy, you know, dealing with the traditional presenting things of depression and anxiety. Uh, and not even things like OCD anxiety, but most talk therapy can help for a lot of issues. But when it's the types of things you're talking about, you need something more specific and you're saying you really want someone who focuses on skills and things of that sort and not every therapist will do that. And so I'd highly recommend finding someone that will do those things for you or with you uh, might be CBT could be DBT uh, to, to help you with that you know and you asked about complex PTSD it tends you know it's usually yeah. people who've had extensive uh, abuse yeah. or traumas and very often oh, yeah. it's with primary caregivers you mentioned your mother so that could fit yeah. your the, the description that you've given so far so I think you know looking for you know this is the hard part because something I and now I, I'm feeling it now the sense of you know from a book you mentioned and you've been to therapy, but for me, even the relationship with a therapist can be scary. So there could be something there where finding another therapist yeah, and connecting. Yeah,
3: that's why I'm postponing it. That yeah. lady that got retired, she was older. Now, I'm trying to figure out my insurance is not that that bad. I can not find therapists, but and I'm fifty-two. Sometimes with the younger ones, I'm not really can connect. Yeah. You know, you know, my kids are older, my issues probably, and the culture, of course. You know, I live somewhere that we barely have Iranian, so, no Iranian therapists. Maybe I mm-hmm. can get with my insurance some call uh, to call them. But so I'll, I need to look for a trauma focus. Uh, is it going to be, a, a, because your dad told me there are two kinds of therapies one is, uh, uh, PhD, what is
1: it? Well, there's many kind. I mean, there's many kind of therapists. Some are, yeah, maybe you're saying uh-huh. a doctorate level or master's level. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say you know necessarily has to be doctorate level. There are many great okay. therapists. So okay. I think for me, it's more important that they're trauma focused or informed or have worked with what you're dealing with, and then whether okay. they are. Um, master's level or a doctor level would be less significant to me in making that decision okay. finding someone that you can see and yeah you know getting started again age you know as someone myself I've been a therapist now for over a decade but I remember when I was younger and I could feel it sometimes for certain clients especially Iranians, if they're older mm-hmm. getting it it's what feels like advice or guidance from someone younger than them could bring up some feelings itself that's something you have to, you know, you can look at. Uh, a big part of therapy is finding someone you feel a match, which means you feel um. comfortable, you feel understood, but also you have to feel like they're competent and someone you want to, uh, you know, connect with, which is also true if you go to a medical doctor, but even more so with therapy, where you have to really feel like they get you, but you also trust them and, and you know, feel that they can uh, give you guidance that you want to, to take. So... Yeah, if if age feels like it's an issue for you, be aware of that, Mm -hmm. that you might want a therapist who's slightly older with more experience. Um, But I would recommend you to go back in. It's not something that you're likely to figure out on your own. And as I said, it might even be, it's it's one of those almost like a catch-22. It's part of what is hard for you is to trust and to make relationships. And to get help, you might have Mm -hmm. to trust and build a relationship with the therapist.
3: So this is a lifetime uh, issue that I have to go to therapy regularly.
1: Possibly, therapy. it could be it's you know a lifetime issue that you know it, it seems like you had uh, uh, we didn't get into the details of it, but significantly impacted you from a very young age, and so you might very always be dealing age. with it. Not just
3: my mother; I had other li- relatives living in the house, hmm. and I wasn't up until sixteen. I mean, that was like scary. i my mom still has issues, and, but uh, yeah. These are, as the, the you know, those tests that they gave me, those cards with those inks and stuff. It took four hours for assessment, and finally she said that she's she was uh, really um, um, just uh, couldn't believe that I cannot show my, de- I have major depressive disorder, but mm-hmm. I learned how to not show it because with my mom, I sh- couldn't have showed that I'm sad mm-hmm. or, you know, worried. worried and now oh, you no know, kids my kids are twenty-four, twenty. 20 grew up they're all american you
1: know and yeah.
3: i still well, problem, you, but
1: you might also yeah. feel more ready you know when you're uh, there in the home you might have felt this uh, still feeling that need of suppressing your feelings to take care of them or be exactly. there which which yeah. I mean there's some of that we do uh, when we're parents or you know, let's say as a therapist or as a parent you do some of that although you may be likely do it to an extreme because of what you experience but nonetheless it could yeah. be that now you will feel like you have the space to, to not be okay or to, to feel your own feelings, which might be uh-huh. an even better time to, to address the issues. And will you always have to be in therapy? It's possible, maybe not. If you go and you work on these tools and, and get to a better place, you might yeah. not need them. But I would say get started because it'll help you feel better whether or not you need to do it lifelong or not. You deserve to mm-hmm. feel better now and, and to work on these things, and then likely it'll allow you to create even more friendships and relationships outside of therapy, which will also help you too. And so maybe someday you won't need it, but I, I wouldn't want you to, that for that to deter you from stopping, or, or to start, sorry, therapy.
3: Okay. Start therapy with a trauma-focused therapist. I yes. I just want to make sure that... <laughs> Because I was, you know, fed up to keep on going and really not getting sure. something to use it.
1: Yeah, it seems that like for you that's so very much. important, this um, this sense of getting uh, tools. And some therapists do that more than others. So, yeah, I'd say find someone that matches what you're looking for, but definitely find someone.
3: Thank you so much. Sure.
1: Nice Thanks talking. So you much. wish you all the best. Nice Take care. You.
3: Thank you. Sure. Bye-bye.
1: All right. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back welcome back let's go to another caller radio Hamra. you're on the air
0: hi dr farid how are you
1: i'm good thank you let me just quickly let you know um we only have about seven minutes or so apologize for that that shortened time but i want to just give you that heads up as we go forward but go ahead
0: Sure. Uh, I'm just going to be very quick sure. and con- condensed. So uh, my daughter, she's two years and eight months old right now. And uh, I have a question regarding her sleeping pattern because, you know, we every- Oh, there's it's, you're kind of br- let me
1: stop you there for a second I, th- I think it's cutting out i heard you say she's two years eight months and something about her room but it, it broke up there for a second so let, let's try that again so she's two years and eight months old um, what's going on uh,
0: and then uh, every night we go up there, put her into bed which, which takes about which takes about hour
3: hours just
0: you know kind of sleep with her read books her stuff how manys is- we're still
1: having some issue with the connection. I don't know if it's your connection or if you're not speaking into the uh the receiver, the speaker. Can you hear me? It's still cutting a little bit in and out it seems.
0: Okay, sorry. Let me okay. let me change my position.
1: Okay. What it about Seems now? like it's getting better. It's, it seems more consistent. Yeah. So what you're saying it takes about 1 to 2 hours to get her to sleep each night? Uh
0: each night. Um, yeah. Okay. I have to go up there talk to I mean uh, you know, read book to her. My problem is in between in middle of the night she wakes up and then she comes right downstairs into our bed and then she either cries or she either expects one of us to go with her to her room and sleep with her again. Or she just wants to sleep with us. Mm-hmm. So I spoke with her pediatrician and then he, he sort of said, you know, She's at the age. You just need to let her cry one about three nights. Just let her alone in the room and Just let her be until you know, she just doesn't do that. I just want to make sure is that the right approach?
1: Well, I mean I I, So this is always difficult when you already have a professional you're working with that's her doctor And then for me to say something that might disagree with that I I tend not to like the approach especially at her age I don't like it even when it's an infant, but um, at her age, this just let abandoning her in her room until she cries it out. I would prefer that you, it does seem if you're telling me it takes her an hour or two every night to fall asleep, and then she's waking up, there there seems to be some anxiety there that she, I don't know, do you see her as an anxious child?
0: Uh
1: Like worries about things, seems, you know, f- lots of fears. Uh
0: maybe yeah i could see that in her okay anxious but i just don't understand like i wouldn't say every night yeah yeah i would say every night takes about hour an hour and a half minimum okay to just put her into bed and then during the night she just doesn't sleep like she just wake up in the middle of the night
1: okay well i mean so i i would say you know my preference would be that as as hard as it can be when she comes to your room and you're already tired and it seems like you're saying she's upstairs you're downstairs that you know one of the parents goes back with her to her room and right. not you know have her you know sometimes it's gonna happen I, I I understand we can make things sound like it's very easy and it's not gonna be so perfect but I'd prefer you go back to her room, leaving her there well I mean what are you even gonna do if she walks to your room what is the pediatrician suggesting taking her back to her room and leaving, and then she cries? Like, I don't I don't know how that would even work if...
0: Exactly, exactly. That's why, I, you know, that's why I wanted to get your help because um, he's saying that to do that, but I just don't understand the rationale because to me, I just want to know what's the right approach. Should I just go, should I just let her, I mean, you're saying should I just go walk with her back to her room and then sleep with her till morning?
1: Well, not, hopefully not like till like morning. Every, and hopefully well, not till morning like if she falls asleep night, yeah uh,
0: well then when she falls asleep, i fall asleep too and we both wake up in the morning together
1: yeah well i mean yeah that's what makes it tough is like again and, and you're not going to sleep as well there and then that becomes the pattern too and we're trying to slowly transition to her sleeping by herself more rather than if it's in your room or her room you know with you one thing i also say is taking um This is very important, but at the same time, taking a wider angle approach that these issues come up often with kids, with issues of sleep, and and it usually turns out okay in the long run. We don't want to make it into something really big that, one, we don't want to make her feel bad about any of this. So understandably, it's frustrating, it's affecting your sleep, you would much rather she just sleeps the night in her room, that'd be easier for everyone. But something is happening here. Either she's anxious or we've created this pattern and now she's so used to it. So one thing I would want you to be very mindful is how much you and, uh, you know, anyone in the house is making her feel bad about this. Or, you know, sometimes parents use things like guilting or, you know, using different techniques to try to get the kid, oh, you know, it's not good when you come or you're not little anymore, so you should be this. Or we don't want to make her feel bad about what she's going through, we can tell her that it's good, everyone you know, is in their own bed and we want to try to make this happen, so we're going towards that, but making sure you don't make her feel bad because the last thing we want is for her to internalize any shame from what's going on here. So, I understand it's affecting your sleep, it's not easy, it's inconvenient, it's a lot of things, but keeping in mind the bigger picture and the way we don't want her to internalize anything negatively. I'm looking at the time I just about have to wrap up, so I will be brief, and I, I apologize because this is an sure. issue that involves or requires more attention, um, but as I said, leaving her in the room, I, I even, I still logistically didn't quite get it, unless you're, which I would obviously hope you don't do, locking her in her room, she can just walk out of her room again if you just let her cry, so I don't know, Even I didn't really get the logistics of letting her cry it out. With an infant, they're stuck in their crib, they can't come out, but a young child can um, and again, because of her age, she's going to, well, when is memory form? But she's going to have more of an, this will even affect her more, I think, to just, uh, leave her in her room and say, like, you know, figure it out. Now, you can make it more of a rule that you're going to sleep in your room. I would encourage that going back to her room rather than in your bed. Um, I see Yeah. But it, it's, it's a, you know, it's a tough one. But again, like I said... You, me, almost everyone you know has had some type of sleep issues like this where things come up. So I don't want you also get too fixated on doing it exactly right or sometimes she sleeps in your bed. It's the, the end of the world. It's not. It, it's going to be okay. Um, but we're just trying to, to, to work through this in a way. And the more you and your partner are on the same page with it will help. But we do, definitely don't want to make your, your daughter feel really bad. That's the, the last thing I would want is for her to feel like I'm bad for doing this. she's waking up and has this feeling that it's hard for her to stay in her room whether she's scared or its just she's so much more comfortable with you. Something is bringing her there. We have to help her uh, and then help the family so it's impacting us less, but we don't want to make her feel bad about it.
0: I see well thank you so much. I know sure. you had a, a really crunch time yes I'm gonna, I have more questions too but I'm gonna be in touch with you please do you do yeah, call back another session. time.
1: yeah, I hope yeah. I can get to you earlier another time and we can have a longer conversation. appreciate your call.
0: No, for sure. Thank you so much. All
1: right, take care. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you to all the callers and Butties here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi We Have a wonderful day.